Up from Reconstructionism, or A Short History of the Puritan Reformed Church of Edmonton, by Michael Wagner, 1996. The Puritan Reformed Church of Edmonton was founded in November 1989 as a congregation of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of the United States, or RPC US. At that time, a number of Edmonton Reconstructionists were unhappy with their existing ecclesiastical connections and wanted to form a Reconstructionist Church. As a result of the Christian Heritage Party of Canada holding its national convention in Edmonton in 1989, Jeff Donnan, then a missionary of the RPC US, was in town. To make a long story short, we, the Edmonton Reconstructionists, convinced Donnan, who consulted with some fellow RPC US ministers by phone, to accept us as an RPC US mission church. Then, in April 1990, one of our members, Mr. Greg Barrow, brother of the notorious publisher Reg Barrow, was ordained as an elder by the General Assembly of the RPC US in Atlanta, Georgia. During the course of 1990, most of our people became convinced of the truth of the regulative principle of worship, namely, that God could only be worshipped in ways prescribed by Scripture. This meant that the church would sing only psalms and would not allow the use of instruments during the worship service. Due to conflicts generated in part over this issue, the church became separated from the RPC US. We continued to grow in our understanding of the biblical truths taught by the Puritans and early Presbyterians and changed our practices as we learned. During this time, we received some refugees from the Bible Presbyterian Church of Edmonton, including Elder Lyndon Domes. Sometime later, in the summer of 1994, we called Greg Price, an Orthodox Presbyterian teaching elder from California, to be our pastor. Price had also come to see that the doctrines taught by the 17th century Puritans and Presbyterians were the true biblical doctrines. Shortly after his arrival in Edmonton, Price was instrumental in helping to organize the Puritan Reformed Church of Prince George, British Columbia, a congregation consisting primarily of ex-charismatics who had become reformed through reading materials obtained from Stillwater's revival books and having discussions with people in the Edmonton congregation, mainly Reg and Greg Barrow. Indeed, it is entirely accurate to say that both the Edmonton and Prince George congregations owe their existence, speaking from a human standpoint, to the literature ministry of Stillwater's revival books, which was increasingly offering works by the most faithful authors and ministers of the Reformation. With a session now consisting of Greg Price, Greg Barrow, and Lyndon Domes, the church also became involved with a group of small Presbyterian churches and various elders that would come together to form a denomination called the Reformation Presbyterian Church. During the latter half of 1995, many of our people began to seriously study the unique theological claims made by the Covenanters. Again, Reg Barrow, and his Stillwaters Revival Books, was in the vanguard of this effort. Throughout the Church's short lifespan, it was continuously moving in the direction of becoming increasingly conformed to the position of the original Westminster Standards and the Covenanted Reformation of the mid-17th century. This process culminated with the Church officially adopting the six terms of ministerial and Christian communion in the Reformed Presbyterian Church, that is, the Covenanter Church, but not to be confused with the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, RPCNA, early in 1996. At this point, the Church was properly constituted in terms of the Westminster Standards and the historically descending covenant obligation that rests upon the visible Church as a moral person. Since the Reformation Presbyterian Church was not duly constituted on the same basis, continuing ecclesiastical fellowship was not possible. 
Most of us in the Puritan Reformed Church of Edmonton became Christians as young adults and were first involved with evangelical or fundamentalist churches. Through studying the scriptures, we all became Reformed. But after traveling through various churches, becoming Reformed and forming our church, we didn't stop studying. We continued to hunger after the meat of the word. The Lord rewarded our diligent study with continued spiritual growth. Not that we consider ourselves worthy of such signal mercies from our covenant Lord. To the contrary, we have been greatly humbled through this sanctifying process. Our pastor and elders have publicly acknowledged their own sinful defection from the truth and have humbly sought God's grace in leading the congregation in the old paths of righteousness and truth. Our testimony is not to our own faithfulness, but rather to the faithfulness of our covenant God. Our deepening understanding of scripture and history made clear to us that the reformers, especially the leaders of the Second Reformation in Britain, had a more accurate understanding of Bible doctrine than anyone uninspired before or since. Much of what we learned from Reconstructionist authors was a partial introduction to the doctrines of the Covenanted Reformation, a kind of Covenanter's kindergarten, to use Reg Barrow's phrase, and to that extent was very beneficial to us. It liberated us from the much more superficial Christianity that constitutes 20th century North American evangelicalism. But Reconstructionism itself is not enough. The Covenanters In 1638, the Presbyterians of Scotland took the National Covenant of Scotland as a common bond of resistance to the unbiblical worship practices that King Charles I wanted to impose on the churches. Then, in 1643, the civil governments, national churches, and a large percentage of the general populations of England, Scotland, and Ireland took the Solemn League and Covenant with the goal of forming a covenanted Presbyterian uniformity in church and state. That meant, among other things, that they wanted true, reformed biblical Christianity to be the established religion of all three countries and practiced in a uniform manner in all three countries. As Philippians 2.2 says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. But in time, ungodly and covenant-breaking leaders, Oliver Cromwell and other independents, Episcopalians, Papists, etc., came to power and persecuted, to a greater or lesser degree, those individuals who insisted that the terms of the covenants be fulfilled. The persecution reached its height under the Papist King James II, who was then overthrown by William Prince of Orange in the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1689. The worst of the persecution ended, but William was unwilling to fulfill the terms of the covenants. William, in fact, was an Erastian and a Tolerationist, leaving much of the covenanted Reformation buried under prelatical and Episcopalian rubbish. As Thomas Houston wrote, The Scottish Reformation in its purest form was deliberately abandoned in William's Revolution settlement. Both the Church and State concurred in leaving unrepealed on the statute book the infamous Act Recissory by which the National Covenants were declared to be unlawful oaths and all laws and constitutions, ecclesiastical or civil, were annulled, which approved and gave effect to them. The Revolution Church was, in every respect, an entirely different establishment from that of the Second Reformation. Its creed was dictated by Erastian authority, its government established on the ground of popular consent and not of divine right, its order and discipline were placed in subjection to Erastian civil rulers, and the scriptural liberties of the ministry and membership interfered with, and corruption in doctrine and ordinances of worship, without the power of removing it, extensively spread throughout the ecclesiastical body. How sadly different a structure did this appear to the eyes of faithful men, who lamented that the carved work of a covenanted sanctuary had been broken down, and the beautiful house where our fathers worshipped was laid waste. Nor could the civil and political part of the Revolution settlement have any pretensions to be a proper carrying out of the civil system of the Reformation era. 
In this, the federal deeds of the nation were the compact between rulers and ruled, and were an essential part of the oath of the sovereign on admission to supreme power. Civil rulers were required to be possessed of scriptural and covenant qualifications, and were taken bound to make a chief end of their government, the promotion of the divine glory and the advancement of the true Reformed religion, and the protection and prosperity of the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Unquote. That's from Thomas Houston, The Life of James Rennick. Surprisingly, like William, most Presbyterians who were elated that King James had been overthrown were also unwilling to uphold the covenants. Those who did insist that the terms of the covenants be upheld refused to support a covenant-breaking government or join with a covenant-breaking, though professedly Presbyterian, church. These old dissenters and their spiritual descendants are known as covenanters because they believe, quote, that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God, obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament, and that the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution, unquote. That's taken from the terms of ministerial and Christian communion in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. For a complete scriptural defense of covenanting, see the Ordinance of Covenanting by John Cunningham, a bound photocopy available from Stillwater's Revival Books. There is much more at stake here than a few decades of British history. The Westminster Standards, including the Confession of Faith and Catechisms, were the fruit of the covenanted uniformity aimed at in the Solemn League and Covenant. The relationship between the Westminster Standards and the Solemn League and Covenant is so close, in fact, that to truly adhere to the Standards requires that an individual or church also adhere to the Solemn League and Covenant. In other words, all true Presbyterians must also be Covenanters. This is clear from the Directory for the Ordination of Ministers in the original 1648 Westminster Standards Form of Presbyterial Church Government, where it says that every candidate for the ministry must, quote, bring with him a testimonial of his taking the covenant of the three kingdoms, unquote, that is, the Solemn League and Covenant. All faithful Presbyterian ministers must adhere to the covenant. As well, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland ruled in 1648, quote, that all young students take the covenant at their first entry to colleges that hereafter all persons whosoever take the covenant at their first receiving the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, unquote. In other words, people who would not take the covenant could not partake of the Lord's Supper. Reconstructionism Reconstructionism has done a lot to bring some Reformation truths to the attention of evangelicals. Those who are hungry for the truth have thus been influenced in a positive direction. But after becoming Reconstructionists, Christians should not become complacent in their theological position. Reconstructionism has missed some very important issues, not least of which include biblical purity of worship and social covenanting. Reconstructionists should diligently study the Bible-based positions of the 16th and 17th century reformers to get a clearer picture of biblical truth. In effect, Reconstructionism is a halfway house between 20th century evangelicalism and truly biblical Reformation Christianity. Reformation Christianity reached its apex in the Westminster Assembly and the documents it produced. Those documents were created in fulfillment of the goals aimed at in the Solemn League and Covenant. The Puritan Reformed Church of Edmonton was originally formed as a Reconstructionist church, but Reconstructionism had taken us only part of the way down the road to real Reformation. We continued further down the road, discovering the biblical basis to the Reformers' view of worship. More recently, we learned of the high point of the Reformation, namely the taking of the covenants and their effects in 17th century Britain. The Reformed and Presbyterian churches of the world will not have much impact until they have recovered the lost theological attainments of our forefathers. God does not bless backsliding. 
we implore Reconstructionists and other Reformed Christians to accompany us back to the old paths of the covenanted Reformation. This is not asking too much. John Calvin, during the First Reformation, showed that he supported the concept of covenanted Reformation by requiring all the residents of Geneva to take an oath in support of the Reformation. The Register of the Council of 24 of Geneva notes as follows, quote, 12th November, 1537. It was reported that yesterday the people who had not yet made their oath to the Reformation were asked to do so, street by street. Whilst many came, many others did not do so. No one came from the German quarter. It was decided that they should be commanded to leave the city if they did not wish to swear to the Reformation. Unquote. That is taken from Pamela Johnston and Bob Scribner's 1993 book, The Reformation in Germany and Switzerland. As Calvin had undoubtedly realized, it is essential for true Reformation that people covenant to obey and follow the truth. We see this in the Reformations experienced by Israel in the Old Testament. The leaders of the Second Reformation also knew the importance of covenanting and followed the biblical precepts to great effect. Thomas Spruill said it well, quote, By the National Covenant, our fathers laid popery prostrate. By the Solemn League and Covenant, they were successful in resisting prelatic encroachments and civil tyranny. By it, they were enabled to achieve the Second Reformation. They were setting up landmarks by which the location and limits of the City of God will be known at the dawn of the Millennial Day. How can they be said to go forth by the footsteps of the flock, who have declined from the attainments, renounced the covenants, and contradicted the testimony of the cloud of witnesses? All the schisms, separations, that disfigure the body mystical of Christ are the legitimate consequences of the abandonment of Reformation attainments, the violation of covenant engagements, unquote. That quote is taken from the short vindication of our covenanted Reformation by the Reformed Presbytery. Only by climbing back to the doctrinal attainments of the Second Reformation will we be able to undertake a true biblical reconstruction of the world. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, 
I have not commanded them whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.